Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. With 2021 coming to an end, Jason Hall and Matt Delalo are here with me to take a look at the year that was in energy and share their predictions for 2022. Jason and Matt, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to be here with you this time, uh, December every year. We tend to do a year in review episode, take a look at what's happening in energy and look ahead to what is going to happen here in uh, next year. So I've asked both of you to bring three stories that define energy for you in 2021 and then one prediction for 2022. Without further ado, let's get to it. Jason, let's lead off with you. What's your uh, your first story uh, for you that defined 2022 in, in 2021 in energy? So one thing that I think is just really interesting that's happened, um, <clears throat> and I think a lot of a lot of people are just overlooking it, is you're you're going to see uh, the oil and gas industry be more involved in renewable fuels. And the one that I wanted to highlight uh, for that is Phillips sixty six. And so Phillips sixty six has has got a has got a refinery in in the UK that's been producing a small amount of of renewable diesel biodiesel for for a while, but it's converting. A pretty significant uh, uh, one of its refineries located in Northern California, its rodeo uh, facility, to be a hundred percent renewable diesel, and it's going to be producing you know hundreds of millions of gallons of diesel per day from things like soybeans, uh, uh, used cooking oil, you know, lots of waste products like that. Um, and I think we're just gonna we're gonna see more. More companies kind of focused on, you know, traditional oil and gas companies that are going to be producing renewable fuels. Absolutely. If folks want to hear more about that, I did an episode back in February with David Gardner. One of the companies we talked about there is uh, Darling Ingredients, which is a market leader in processing things like used cooking oil, et cetera. Also very heavily involved in renewable diesel. They're a 50% partner in Diamond Green Diesel with Valero Energy. Uh, you know, They were one of the earlier movers into this renewable diesel space. And to your point, Jason, we've seen lots and lots of other companies start to come in, whether it's uh, whether it's Phillips 66 with their project or there's, there's been a number of private equity projects as well, part of that is government starting to uh, you know incentivize uh, some of these fuels. There appears to be a clear path to uh, profitability with a little bit of government support, and uh, clearly a trend that I think is going to continue playing out over the next several years. Yeah, and Philip sixty six has a, has a history of like finding ways to make money uh, using feedstocks um, and, and having better access with just really high quality refineries. I think they're going to be a leader in this. All right, Matt, what have you got for your uh, your first story here? Yeah, mine's kind of playing on that same theme of energy companies going renewable, but this is the midstream industry. So like your pipeline companies and uh, processing companies, there's a lot of them, uh, big names like Kinder Morgan, Energy Transfer, Williams, they've all launched uh, what they're calling new energy ventures groups this year. Uh, to get into this space. And they're doing a lot of different things. A lot of them are doing like they'll buy solar power or or wind power to like self power their pipeline operations to kind of reduce emissions. But they're also looking at ways that they can leverage their kind of base business of storing and transporting uh, liquid fuels uh, and taking that into alternatives. Like Jason mentioned, renewable uh, diesel. Well, this is a you know kind of bread and butter business for some of these companies was just regular diesel. So now they're using those same facilities, investing the capital that needs to reinvest it to like bring them up to this the type of standards for these things. And then 
using that to kind of grow in the future. So Kinder Morgan, for example, they are really getting into renewable natural gas. They bought a company called KinderX Energy, which is building like, I think it's three renewable natural gas facilities. And uh, what they're taking is gas from landfills, all that methane that landfills are producing. They're taking that and they're putting it into pipelines. It's much lower carbon emissions. So it's a it's a very good business for them because it fits right into their existing pipelines. They don't have to do anything with that. And then they're looking at other things like carbon capture and storage, hydrogen. You know, they want to get into this this future of energy. And we're seeing the same thing with Williams. They're doing very similar things. They have a lot of land out in Wyoming. They want to put a big wind farm out there and see how, if they could use that to generate um, hydrogen, create green hydrogen with that. And uh, Energy Transfer, another big midstream company, they're looking at uh, very similar things, self-powering and uh, you know how they can get into processing, storing, exporting these type of alternative fuels. So it's a big trend that really came to the forefront this year. Right, taking these pipes and then turning them into uh, transporting a new uh, form of liquid. Matt, how um, early on would you say that these companies are you know, on the process of getting involved in this renewable space? Still kind of uh, relatively immaterial to the overall business, but growing? Yeah, yeah, definitely immaterial. For example, Kinder Morgan is spending about $1.2 billion this year, this upcoming year, to expand their natural gas pipeline business and some uh, oil. They're probably going to spend maybe $200 million of that on these, you know, smaller projects. Uh, some of them are like only $50 million projects. So, you know, like they're, they want to build a renewable diesel hub out in California, little project right now, but it has big implications. Right. Snowball rolling downhill, right? As we see proof of concept and Kinder Morgan can say, hey, look, look at this project we've done in renewable diesel. Hey, other uh, company, we can go run this similar playbook for you. Uh, clearly a, a story we're going to continue to see playing out over the next couple years. Jason, uh, what's your second topic for us? Yeah. So it's just, it's kind of boggled the mind a little bit um, when you start peeling back the layers and look at carbon capture and, and hydrogen um, and, and the company that I've kind of looking at it through the lens of is Chart Industries. And I was going through a recent presentation the company did back in November, kind of highlighting a big manufacturing, like their main manufacturing facility. And one of the slides they have shows uh, their acquisitions and strategic investments that they've made starting back in 2018. You look at 2018 and 2019, and it was you know an expansion at a facility. They acquired uh, a cryogenics company. They bought VRV, which is an Italian company um, that kind of does like the same like cryogenics, mainly for like natural gas and industrial gas. Um, <clears throat> they bought uh, air exchangers from Harsco, which was tied to liquefied natural gas. They divested part of their business that didn't really fit. But like that year was like all like liquid, liquid, uh, liquefied natural gas. That was like clear the thing. Then you flip the calendar to 2020 and 2021. And I counted like a dozen deals that they did where they either made acquisitions or there were strategic investments taking on maybe a minority stake um, or master supply agreements. And every single one of them, but like three were tied to either carbon capture or um, or hydrogen, like like every single one. And the thing we've been talking about with Chart for most of the past six or eight years has been liquefied natural gas, right? Is the need to get more natural gas around the world. So they make the equipment to get that gas from places where it's produced, like North America, uh, to places like Asia and Europe where they need it. But there's been so much focus on carbon capture and liquefied natural gas just over the past two years, if you look at their acquisitions. And here's the thing, this is kind of, caught me off guard too. So that they did that presentation in November. 
since they released that presentation, they've made three more announcements of acquisitions or joint ventures. They are really hitting, um, <clears throat> they're really hitting the gas pedal on, on focusing on carbon capture and on, um, on hydrogen. And they're, they're calling those two combined like $30 billion market opportunities uh, by 2030. That's like 10 times larger than they are right now. It's, that's, to me, that's, 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 really, that's really compelling. Yes. So again, next generation fuels, um, you know, I had been involved in liquid natural gas, now getting involved in, in carbon capture and storage. Again, an example uh, of some of these energy related businesses now starting to trans transition somewhat into uh, these these industries of the future, at least uh, in, in the energy space. Matt, um, what's your second story? Yeah, so mine's kind of along the same theme uh, and it's looking more broadly at overall big oil. So last year, uh, we saw a lot of the European big oil companies, BP, Total, Energies, they really started to get into renewable energy. Offshore wind is a big thing that they're looking at. And that was kind of like how Europeans are playing this energy transition. This year, the U.S. big oil companies kind of gave investors their blueprint of the way they're kind of tackling the energy transition, and it's completely different. They're going into the, the industries Jason talked about. Carbon capture and storage is like the big thing that Exxon is looking at. Chevron is another one. Carbon capture and storage. And they're both pumping a lot of money into this, a lot more money. Exxon, for example, plans to spend $15 billion over the next six years on carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. That's up from $10 billion that they initially planned to spend. And then Chevron just recently tripled their low carbon investment. And for them, that means renewable fuels, which we touched on earlier, carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. They're going to spend about $10 billion through 2028. Now, those sound like big numbers, and they are, but... Uh, compared to like what Exxon and Chevron spend overall, you know, I think Chevron's like around $15 billion a year in their oil and gas business. So these aren't material, but the whole idea is they want to produce what's as close to net zero oil as possible. So like with carbon capture and storage, the idea is all the carbon emissions that you produce as they're producing oil and then burning oil, if they can capture that and store that, you're offsetting that emissions and then oil becomes a viable uh, commercial fuel as we're trying to combat climate change. So that's the direction they're going. It's completely different from Europe. I think it's an interesting, it, I think it's a high risk bet, um, but you know they, they really are pumping a lot of money into it. Yeah, Matt, what do you make of, do you think these results would have happened but for the, the activist pressure those companies faced earlier this year? Or to what extent do you think this is being driven by just the investor environment? I think it's a totally investor environment. I think Exxon and uh, Chevron would rather just invest in oil because that's where they can get the returns. Uh, they know that business. This is really trying to be part of the solution. And, you know, I personally question whether carbon capture and storage and low carbon oil is going to be a viable alternative. If, yeah, me too. Yeah. If like green hydrogen becomes that that solution, which, you know, we have a lot of big names like NextEra Energy and Brookfield are investing in that. So if that becomes the big thing, then they've really wasted a lot of money. Yeah, that, 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 that's the that's the question. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. You know, there's one argument, uh, you know, on the side of the activists that says if you don't transition, then, you know, you're not going to have a business here 10 years down the line. And then there's the other the other bucket of folks that says, hey, um, you got to make money to have a business. And, uh, you know, maybe these things won't make money. That's why they play the games. That's why we uh, we have to monitor these companies and see, you know, what the actual future looks like. But that's a big question uh, uh, facing the industry today that we still don't have all the answers to. Uh, Jason, your third story. You know, I, I was thinking I would I would just kind of take a look at what's happened in offshore oil and 
I guess you could really say it hasn't happened. Um, but but I think the looking at the bigger picture um, is actually more useful. So Baker Hughes, this you know one of the largest oil and gas services companies in the world, produce uh, releases a monthly uh, rig count, um, and it, it reduces uh, produces a global rig count. And and I just thought it would be really interesting to talk about the numbers here. Um, so in 2021, so far. This is through this is through November. There have been an average of 1,343 rigs operating, active operating rigs um, globally. Um, that's actually lower than it was last year. It was 1,352 in 2020, um, and it surprised me that it was a little bit lower. Now there's 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 some upside here, right? The past couple months, October, November, it was over 1,500, so we're seeing it go up, but. Let's go back to 2019, 2018, 2017, all of the preceding years, the rig counts consistently, consistently were over 2000 every year. And in 2019, we're actually above 2200, which was probably too many um, because the, the reality is that they knew heading into the end of the year, the projections were that oil demand would actually fall in 20, um, in 2020, uh, mainly because China and COVID, um, even back then at the end of 2020, it was like, there's this virus in China that's probably going to affect their their oil demand. Um, the last time we saw rig counts this low was in 2016, and they were around 1,600. For those that don't remember, oil prices hit like below $30 a barrel early, um, early that year, coming out of the 2014, 2015, the peak, and then you know, oil was over $100 a barrel. And just thinking about broadly two years of rig counts being this low, I think it's going to support one of Matt's predictions that he's going to make a little bit lower, a little bit later. Yeah, we really are seeing spending on oil and gas exploration at a a, a cyclical low. It looks like so. A number I, I came across the other day, Evercore ISI put out put out predictions. U.S. oil producers are on pace to spend the lowest amount of capital on exploration and production since 2004. Uh, clearly, uh, not a, a strong environment to be uh, to be investing incremental dollars on oil and gas, which you know over the long term is arguably constructive to the oil and gas price as long as demand remains intact. Maybe we'll talk about that um, a little bit later. Matt, your your story mentions a little bit about around uh, how much capital is getting allocated towards exploration and production. You want to talk about your third story? Yeah. So usually when we have higher oil prices, which we had this year, oil companies in the U.S., the shale companies that can really produce oil quickly, they'll pump. Uh, you know, they'll ramp up their drilling programs and pump as much oil as they can. Uh, this year, that didn't happen. And instead of pumping all this money into their capex program, they are returning that to shareholders, which is uh, it's a good thing for shareholders, uh, you know, whether that that's a good thing for the market, we'll see. But it's just been an amazing the amount of money that they have decided to return to shareholders. And a lot of them decided we're going to keep production level with last year's level and anything we generate above and beyond what we, we need to keep production steady, we're returning that to shareholders. And the way they do, they're doing that is pretty interesting. A lot of them have turned to what's like a they'll pay like you know their typical dividend but in addition to that they're paying variable dividends and they're paying out a significant portion of cash flow net so i'm going to run through this couple of names devon energy their variable dividend is 50 percent of their excess cash after capital expenses and their base dividend and that variable dividend has gone up every quarter because oil prices have gone up and devon's just making more money as they integrate they, they made a big deal earlier this year and so that's really just been pumping a ton a ton of cash flow into their business they're also repurchasing some shares 
Pioneer Natural Resources, a big Permian driller, they're paying up to 75% of their excess cash each quarter in dividends. And uh, they're also repurchasing shares. Now they see their dividend, which could yield around nine to 11%, could actually double next year if oil prices continue to rise and just they get all these merger synergies. They made a couple of big deals. Uh, you know, so they we're talking about huge, huge dividends coming from this, these companies. ConocoPhillips, big oil company in the United States, they're planning on returning $7 billion in cash investors in this coming year. It includes a base dividend, $3.5 billion of share repurchases, and then a billion dollar variable dividend. Uh, they're calling available return of cash. They're actually staggering there as a dividend in Pioneer. They're paying their base dividend and quarter in um, variable dividend together. Uh, ConocoPhillips is kind of giving offsetting at different quarters. So, you know, it gives investors a little bit more cash flow. And then ELG Resources, they've always been like a huge growth company. Anytime oil prices went up, they were just, you know, ramping up production. They're not doing that. They've increased their dividend twice this year, 10% the first time, 82% the next time. Uh, they pay two special dividends, really, really big special dividends. And then they've set a $5 billion share purchase program. So you have some of the biggest growth companies in the oil industry not growing. They're all returning cash to investors. Yeah, so, so really a huge shift in, in how capital is being allocated. You know, if you think about it, you know, when all this money was being invested in production, the beneficiaries are the folks who are getting low prices at the pump. Um, you know, uh, the more and more oil's out in, in the market, the lower the prices go. Now, as we see oil and gas companies being more restrained, more and more value is actually being captured by the shareholders in, in oil and gas businesses. We'll see how long that lasts, but uh, you know, the uh, there is an argument to be made that. Uh, this is probably the best time in a long time to be a shareholder in, in, in some of these companies, given the amount of money that's being pushed into production and also the amount of cash you're getting back as a shareholder. Yeah, I would agree. And and even the ones that are growing, you know, when we do need production, they can actually add some incremental production. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if oil prices hit $100, is that, you know, the what's going to break the camel back and then they go to that drill baby drill. Um, but right now it's, it's all about giving money to shareholders. Well, and the key is that like, it's not what these companies are going to do in that regard. It's all the other independents that are not following this similar strategy. Right. The private equity folks, et cetera. Um, well, Matt, you mentioned $100 oil. So maybe let's let's stick with you uh, for our, our 2022 predictions. What do you have for us? Yeah, I, I think based on what Jason was saying and then based on what I was saying, I think oil prices are going to be higher uh, over the next year. I think they could even hit $100 a barrel if we have a supply shock. We've had those... Yeah, almost every year there's been something that happened, you know, somebody will bomb Saudi Arabian oil production or there'll be fires in Canada. Something seems to happen that that shocks the oil market. I think we'll see that this year and it could send oil to $100. And you add that to the, you know, I, I, with booster shots being widely available, new drugs to combat COVID, I think we're going to be a lot more travel going on. International travel should rebound. It just all sets up for high oil prices. Right. Demand is going up and supply is not following suit based on what you said as far as the amount of cash that's being allocated to production. That's a, that's a combination that makes for higher oil prices. Yeah. Like, I mean, like it's not even close. That's, I mean, that's the thing. And it's not even just the, the investments that weren't made last year or over, you know, in 2021 or 2020. We're talking about investments that weren't made five years ago, right? That's so it's, it's, this isn't just a COVID story. This is a story that's been playing out over the past, you know, six or seven years, really. Yeah, and that's for these variable dividends. I mean, they, they could be really substantial next year. If you have $100 oil, I mean, you're talking about some big time dividends. Okay, Jason, uh, what is your prediction for 2022? So this, honestly, this is a bit of a softball for me. Um, this is the, so the the renewable um, 
uh, industries. You think about um, utility scale projects like solar and, and and wind. It's a pretty cyclical space, right? For the for the way that the the investments are made, the capital is allocated out uh, from one year to the next. It can change um, a lot, even though the big long tail trend is growth. Um, and we're in a bit of a kind of a weak spot in the cycle right now. And a lot of the projections are that that next year will be relatively flat. But I think it's I think we're going to see some growth. I think the cycle is going to turn next year. Um, and I think that's going to be good for one company in particular, TPI Composites, ticker TPIC. Um, and, and again, this is kind of a bit of, a, of, of an easy guess prediction here. The company almost went bankrupt this year, I, it, and I don't think I'm, it's much of a stretch to say that. It's and it was far closer to being bankrupt than management would ever admit. But here's the bottom line: when you have to go to Oak Tree Capital, which is like the lender of last resort, and pay an 11% interest rate to get your hands on 400 million plus in capital, and you and you and you tell investors that you were you know out of. Um, you know, compliance with some of your of your lending um, agreements, you were in trouble, right? But the core business is really important. Um, wind turbine industry is is big and it's global, and you just can't economically um, manufacture um, as as one manufacturer. You can't manufacture turbines in every market you participate in because they're just it's too expensive. You don't have enough scale to get the volume to do it cost effectively, and you can't manufacture them somewhere else and ship them five thousand miles because they're so giant and those costs um, just they, the the model doesn't work. And that that puts TPI um, Composites in a really good position is like the vendor of choice for third party manufacturing um, for all of the, the 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 wind turbine companies out there. I think it's going to be a good year, and I think the stock's going to go up pretty substantially, assuming that management learned its lesson and they don't screw it up. Love it. I, I don't think there's a lot of doubt out there about the growth of, of wind energy, although there is some... Uh, I mean, offshore is one one particular area where there seems to be a lot of excitement. Very much. And the technology's gotten a lot better. There's been billions of dollars that have been putting into making those offshore turbines even bigger and more powerful. Um, and that's that's important, right? Because that's a place where you can pretty much predict... Uh, that there's going to be wind a lot of the time. Um, you just have to maximize how much power you get out of every bit of wind that you get offshore. All right, we've got a couple minutes uh, extra, so I'll jump in with with, with one prediction. I'll, I oh, will boy. I will contribute to the team here. I think 2022 is going to be the year that nuclear energy goes from heel to face in the in the global energy market. For the longest time, nuclear has been something that's been on the the decline, something we don't want to build incremental nuclear capacity. But I think the rubber is starting to hit the road when it comes to to energy prices such that uh, attitudes are, are shifting. So um, one example is, is in Europe. You just had uh, the Netherlands coalition government basically announced that they're going to build their next generation uh, energy strategy around nuclear. Uh, you've all, you've got France and Germany kind of battling back and forth around whether nuclear will be classified um, as clean energy in the EU. You've also got some very public battles of which Elon Musk has gotten involved around the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear plant in, in California with, with folks debating back and forth. I think given the prices that we're seeing in natural gas, and they are insane um, in Europe, um, and just the constraints to, to really shift to uh, um, renewables like wind and solar, given the intermittency and the, the stress it puts on the grid as you get more and more um, intermittent uh, energy sources. I think we're, we're kind of reaching the point where, where folks are going to have to uh, 
you know, come to Jesus a little bit with, um, with, with nuclear energy. Nuclear makes up, um, I think, 20% of the energy mix in the U.S. It's much larger um, in other countries. We need baseload power that, um, that uh, you know, can be produced in a, in a carbon-free environment. And I think we've just reached the point where, um, given the way the cycle is turning in, in fossil fuels, uh, we're going to have some hard decisions to make on nuclear, and I think uh, we're in 2022 is the year where sentiment turns. I don't Am think I they're hard decisions. No, I think you're spot on. I think the bottom line is that the biggest thing here is political will, right? And the further we get away from Fukushima Daiichi, the the terrible disaster that happened in Japan, um, and it becomes it fades from the public consciousness, right, right, and that the perception of the risk and the danger, and like the math about the safety of of nuclear starts to become more of the reality of the way people think about it in terms of safety and the real harm of climate change and carbon and spewing carbon into the atmosphere becomes more apparent. I think, I think that's what's going to change, right? Is the, the cowardice that we've seen from politicians around the world is going to be able to go away because there's an economic story that makes sense and more people are going to feel safe about it. Yeah, it's still a very difficult space to invest in right now. Not a lot of pure plays. And again, I, you know, I yeah, said just lots invest of times in Brookfield the- asset management, right? You want to invest in nuclear just by Brookfield because they've got a big investment there that's going to be worth a lot more money over the next five years. Right. They, they took Westinghouse out of bankruptcy in, I believe, 2019, and, and they, they service basically all the nuclear plants um, in in, uh, in North America, or at least a, a meaningful chunk. So, so they're one potential beneficiary. But hopefully as, as things... Um, normalize or as maybe sentiments shift, there may be some more opportunities to invest in the space. I don't know. That's something we'll continue to pay attention to and hopefully talk about in the future. But until then, I want to thank Jason and Matt for joining me today and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks. This was fun. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall and Matt DeLallo, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.